Welcome to KUOW Speakers Forum. I'm your host, Sonia Harris. I'm sitting in for John O'Brien. In this episode, for years, society's general understanding of those who experienced blindness was rooted in tropes found in pop culture and literature. But author and columnist M. Leona Godan aims to enlighten and broaden that understanding while confronting the perspectives of an ocular-centric culture. In this talk, Godan shares her unique and intimate perspectives on the subject matter by exploring the sources of various tropes and archetypes often associated with being blind. Using excerpts from her new book, Their Plant Eyes, A Personal and Cultural History of Blindness, Godan addresses a virtual Town Hall Seattle audience with historical anecdotes and discussing the science around blindness. Godan also weaves in her own personal story of gradually becoming visually impaired when she was a child, with additional tales of notable figures on the spectrum of blindness in pop culture and entertainment. Godan was joined in conversation with fellow author and graphic designer Keith Rawson. M. Leona Godan is an author, playwright, and educator who is blind. Her writing has appeared in the New York Times, Playboy, and The Oprah Magazine. In 2019, she was a Logan Nonfiction Fellow and has written and produced two theatrical productions. Keith Rawson is the author of the novels The Mercy of the Tide, Smoke City, and Road 7. He's also a legally blind illustrator and graphic designer. This virtual talk was presented by Town Hall Seattle on June 16th. Thank you so much. Hi, Keith. Hey, how are you? I'm good. How are you doing? Good. I'm going to stop this before we start and say for our blind brothers and sisters, we're going to give a quick image description of our heads and backgrounds. So I am, uh, I've got long brown hair. I'm wearing purple sunglasses and a black top with a little cameo pen. And behind me is a nice purple wall. I painted it to match my sunglasses. Just, just kidding. And there's some flowers back there and strategically placed is my book. And, um, I am wearing a plaid shirt. I have black eyeglasses on, brown hair, alarmingly growing uh, gray whiskers at this point. And to the left of me is a wall of pen and uh, like markers. And behind me is a painting of a bear cub and a raven. So how are you doing? I am doing okay. How cool. are you doing? Good. We we talked before we started here that this is a uh, something like the twelfth um, stop on your book tour or something like that. And yeah, it's a uh, virtual whirlwind. Yeah, I'm really hoping that I can ask you some questions that you haven't been asked yet. I bet uh, you can. So what I'd like to do is. Um, since the book was essentially written as a, a cultural uh, history of blindness, it, it kind of starts chronologically. And so I'd like mm. to also ask my questions chronologically and cool. maybe there will be some kind of repeat of themes and all that stuff, but that's okay. I'll edit as I go, you know? Yeah. Um, so I Lay it on me. Yeah. I was wondering if you could kind of start things out with talking about your, um, you could be as brief or as, as long as you'd like about your own history regarding your vision. Oh, so I've been on what I've been calling sort of the sight blindness continuum um, for pretty much all of my life. So when I was 10 years old, I had almost completely normal vision. And then suddenly uh, I couldn't see the writing on the blackboard from the back of the class. So it was very subtle. It just seemed like I might need glasses. 
my dad had been wearing glasses like all of his life. So it didn't seem like a big surprise. Go to the ophthalmologist and um, they couldn't get it down. Or first the optometrist, they couldn't get it down to normal. Um, so series of eye doctors and, and finally I was diagnosed with the progressive eye disease. And since then, over the decades, it was very slow. So sort of a constant um, erosion of vision that was not noticeable like day by day or, or month by month, but maybe year by year, it was a little bit noticeable or every couple of years or so, um, I would notice that I wouldn't be able to do something that I was able to, to do before. And so the first thing to go for me was because I lost my central vision first. Um, the first thing to go for me was actually print. So mm -hmm. the standard size print was kind of the first to go and details as well as some some night blindness. But other than that, from like the time I was 10 until the time I was 30 or so, or even beyond that, um, I basically walked around, you know, without a cane, without a dog, anything like that. So I definitely considered myself to be visually impaired, um, but I couldn't, I couldn't read normal print. So I used a lot of technology for, for things like that. So it would only be in the last, um, I don't know, maybe five to 10 years that I would consider myself to be totally blind insofar as I have no more useful vision. So just a little bit of light perception, but not very much anymore. So that's kind of the last thing. Right. So, okay. Yeah. So that's good. And um, I, we kind of talked about that because our vision is kind of like the opposite as far as when you initially started losing your, because yeah. I have virtually no peripheral vision uh, yeah. and I just have central vision. And I think that's one of the things that you tackle in your book that for a lot of sighted culture, blindness is really an either you are or you're not. Yes. One of the things that I think you work very hard at in this book is dismantling that idea and talking about the vast spectrum of blindness and yeah. of visual impairment, right? Yeah. I must say that I was always very jealous because there's a more typical version of my progressive disease that... Um, is usually known as RP and it, it usually presents much like yours and at least for, for many decades. So that you have yeah. just the, the, the increasingly uh, more narrow tunnel vision. And right. I must say that I used to go to RP groups and stuff and I was always very jealous of those people uh -huh. <laughs> because yeah. I was like, oh man, that's what I want. I remember there was this, this older gentleman and he was talking about, you know, reading a newspaper with his guide dog. And I was like, man, I want to be able to like read a newspaper with my yeah. guide dog. That seems like the best of all possible worlds right. if right. you're going to go blind, you know? Yeah. So, totally. so just within the spectrum, there's some, there's some envies. So, right. <laughs> So, um, and before we get too, too deep into this, uh, one of the uh, words that come up throughout the book is this notion of what you call ocular central, ocular centrism. You got it. Can you give me a, a brief rundown on what you mean by that term? Yeah, and I, I did not make it up. Um, I first read it as a graduate student um, in a book called uh, Downcast Eyes by a, by a um, was he, like a literary historian. Um, uh, named Martin J. It's funny because I hadn't thought about that word for, for many years. You know, I kind of put grad school behind me. And then I, um, even just last year, I guess it was, I went, I zoomed down for a lecture down at uh, Rice University. And I was a guest lecturer in this class um, in the medical humanities. 
And all these kids had read the Martin J book and they were throwing around this word ocular centrism. And I'm like, that is such a good word. I haven't thought yeah. about that word in 15 years, you know? And I was right. like, so it's funny because it kind of animates the book, but it came kind of late in, to actually have a name for it kind of came late in the game. Um, I'll say this first, I think it's important to say that um, ocular centrism is not about being a visual person. So when I say things like, you know, I'm trying to fight the evil empire of ocular centrism, I don't mean I'm, you know, looking to like poke out everybody's eyeballs or anything like that. You know, it's not sort of an anti-visual yeah. um, sensibility. It's really um, fighting against um, the tendency of many sighted people to feel like not only is sight an important sense for them as individuals, but it's the most important sense. And furthermore, if you don't have a sight, you are then like experience, uh, experiencing a lesser part of the world or even a lesser kind of a human being to, to not be able to see. So the idea is, is, is that ocular centrism kind of puts sight at such an important uh, part of the human experience that it doesn't allow for other kinds of of perceptual um, stances or, or, right. or perceptual abilities. Yeah, and that's that is a brilliant definition. And I think that there are like a ton of things in the question I have that tackle that notion, just through different historians and different quotes, and this is and that. So I'm very excited to like get to those. You know, um, before we get too far deep, can you please? Ooh. Give us a rundown on what in the world this title is. What are, what do you oh. <laughs> their plant eyes. Yes, let me take a drink of water for that. So, okay. mm. so their plant eyes comes from Paradise Lost, written by the blind poet extraordinaire John Milton. Um, it was written uh, after his blindness um, that came upon him in his in his forties, uh, and quite famously he wrote this, you know, just this little poem of whatever, 10,000 lines, uh, epic poem, uh, in the, the dead of night, and would then, um, you know, kind of store the lines in his head, like 20, 40 lines in his head, and uh, dictate them to an amanuensis. Um, so that's kind of why Milton occupies his own chapter. He's like one of the few people that gets his own chapter. The title comes from a moment in Paradise Lost in book three, uh, where the narrator kind of brings us from uh, the workings of hell into the goings on in heaven. And he's kind of talking about how, even if he's moving from darkness to light, he is not able to actually see the physical light. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if I can pull this off right now because I am a little <laughs> nervous, but yeah. let's see, we'll, we'll try it. So it's just a few lines, so it's not going to be too painful. All right. So it goes like this, so much the rather thou celestial light shine inward and the mind through all her powers irradiate their plant eyes, all mist from thence purge and disperse that I may see and tell of things invisible to mortal sight. So there you go. Wow, right. I am giving the ovation right now. That was awesome. <laughs> you know, it's funny because I actually, I have the poem um, on the back of my computer. I, I have some braille tape. And mm -hmm. so there's a, the poem, like the line. So I was like, okay, let me just make sure I get the first couple of words. Yeah. 
right? <laughs> um, okay, so that was awesome. There is, let's start going through some of the people uh, that you kind of talk about and, and where they okay. kind of fit in this, this historical and cultural pantheon of, of blindness. Um, we got a gentleman named Stephen Cusisto. Cusisto, yes. Can you tell us about him? So he is a he is a blind poet as well and memoirist, and he is uh, very much alive and well. And actually, I just did an event with him not too long ago. It's nice that you you move from Milton to Cusisto because he also was very much inspired by uh, by Milton. Mm-hmm. Um, there's like a really great moment. I think it's an eavesdropping. Uh, that he talks about listening to Paradise Lost on these on these records on these long playing records that came from uh, for the for, from the library for the blind and um, and it's it's actually a really wonderful little anecdote that's in the Milton chapter so kind of giving you an, a sense of even if the chapter is about Milton there's going to be some anecdotes from me, some right. um, anecdotes from some memoirists. And so Cusisto, who is uh, kind of my my friend in, in admiration um, mm-hmm. of, of Milton, he has this really wonderful anecdote where um, he's in school, in high school, and kind of his progressive high school teacher has everybody bring in a record, um, you know, and so everybody's like bringing in these rock and roll records, you know, like having really wonderful debates about like who has the better guitar solos, you know, Clapton or Hendrix and that sort of thing. And then, and then Steve gets up there with his long playing record of Paradise Lost and plays, plays a little of like Satan falling, you know, into, into hell and, uh, and lets the record kind of play out. And there's this wonderful moment where he's like, and nobody said anything. Like I was alone with the spirit of Milton. So it was right. a really great moment. Um, yeah. He his first book is called Planet of the Blind. Eavesdropping is is I think his second memoir, and that's more about the experience of living in the world, um, well by ear, and and it's really gorgeous. I mean that's where sort of poetry meets memoir in that book. Um, I think I would call him. Um, sort of one of my, like one of my, my blind guides through this yeah. book, um, because it was really important for me to, you know, I, like you said, I start way back, right, with Homer and everything, right. but um, it was really important for me at every stage of the book to make sure that people remember that these archetypes are still with us and very much alive and influencing how blindness is perceived um, Mm -hmm. by both the sighted and the blind. And so um, I think the reason why I use so many blind memoirs to kind of inform the larger historical sweep is really because I wanted that grounding. I want it to be grounded, not just in history, but also in the the experience of blind people right now, you know, in, in, you know, when when we walk out the street out onto the street today you know that these archetypes are kind of still with us for better or for worse yeah so let's jump forward a bit to a guy who i believe his name is uh dennis diderot is that right yeah diderot 19 or 1749 letter this is just a line that i thought was brilliant and it very much taught like nails i think this kind of the scope of what you're trying to do here Hmm. and it's this kind of treatise or whatever letter on the blind for the use of those who see mm-hmm. and the, this line is 
people try to give those um, born blind the gift of sight, but rightly considered, science would be equally advanced by questioning a sensible blind man. Yeah. I think that's brilliant, right? Yeah. Like that really tackles the scope of so much of what you're getting at here. You really nail the trope of like a blind person is simultaneously viewed as inherently flawed and also like like capable of like near majestic insight, right? Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, and I was wondering if you could just kind of talk about that notion of like how we're blind and visually impaired people are all are simultaneous like, oh, you poor baby. And mm-hmm. oh, you must be able to, your other senses must be so acute, like a ninja. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, Yeah. No, it's that the, the wild oscillation right between like the super blind, right? right. And the the poets and the prophets and uh, yeah, the, the, the superheroes uh, and the, the blind samurai swordsmen and all that sort of thing on the one hand, and then the p- pathetic blind person on the other. And then there's this other thing, and this is kind of what, um, what Diderot is speaking to here, is uh, kind of blind person as specimen. Uh-huh. Um, and he's coming out of, you know, so he's one of the kind of philosophes of the French Enlightenment in the later part of the 17th century, um, which is also the century of Milton, there was a guy named John Locke who who wrote a book called Essay Concerning Human Understanding. And in it um, was posited this, well, actually, he, he was talking about innate knowledge. So about how really perceptions, uh, he's, you know, he was talking about empiricism. So how perceptions inform our thoughts and that we're not born with any kind of innate knowledge that is actually the senses that furnish us with our information. And so a friend of his, um, a fellow philosopher uh, in Scotland, this guy named Malinu, wrote him with this question that was, if a man was born blind and suddenly made to see uh, if he, before he was blind, if he could recognize a cube from a sphere by touch, would he be able to recognize them by sight alone if he was suddenly you know, re- restored to sight? Um, and so uh, this became like one of these animating questions coming out of the 17th century and into the 18th century. And in fact, in the beginning of the 18th century, they figured out very early on how to, how to remove cataracts. Mm-hmm. So you actually suddenly had real blind people having their cataracts removed, and you got to test out this philosophical question. And interestingly, things did not go the way that you <laughs> might think that they would. And, you know, I, I think I say a couple of places where it's like, you know, being sort of, quote, restored to sight is not like like the biblical kind of restored to sight where suddenly everything is quite clear and the angels sing hallelujah. It's actually like very complicated and there are many things that a newly sighted person can't see because their brain hasn't learned how to see. And, and right. that's really what um, you know they were starting to realize um, and that neuroscience is really beginning to, to bear witness to it, you know, that it's not seeing doesn't happen just in the eyes, but it actually happens in the brain. And, and a lot of what babies do, it, you know, is learn how to connect the things that they touch with the things that they see. And, and it makes those connections in the brain and stuff. So, so Diderot is really speaking to that impulse to give, um, to, to give 
the blind, or this is kind of how it's put from the sighted perspective, from the ocular centric perspective, right, mm -hmm. is that you want to give sight to the blind. And he's like, maybe we shouldn't, you know, in that quote, what you read, maybe we shouldn't worry so much about giving sight to the blind, because it doesn't really always work out the way you think. I should say yeah. that one of the really funny examples is like, this kid, one of the very first people to have a cataract removed and suddenly go from being blind to sighted, couldn't really recognize anything at all, let alone a cube from a sphere. And so there's this funny moment where he sort of keeps like picking up his cat and sort of being like, oh, now I'll know you again, puss or whatever. Like he uh -huh. just couldn't recognize his cat from his dog and stuff. So right. it was like this kind of silly moment. So, so Diderot speaking to that of like, okay, this is not working the way our philosophers, you know, and he's a philosopher of course himself, but he's like, this isn't working the way we would intuitively think it would work. So maybe we should stop um, trying, you know, trying to restore sight and just have a nice conversation with a very intelligent blind person. So gotcha. he's such an important important figure because he's kind of one of the first people to say that, mm -hmm. and it very likely spurred a certain kind of person to then think, oh, well, then what we need to do is educate the blind. And so it really led directly to, or I shouldn't say directly, but it it very clearly influenced um, the, the person who would open up the very first school for the blind in Paris, just, um, well, with about 30 years after, after Diderot uh, said that sentence that you right. or wrote that sentence that you read. So, so kind of trying to make the connection between blind history and history generally is a lot of what I'm trying to do as well. You know, that these right. two things are intimately connected your uh your timing is perfect because i was about to ask you a question about valent is it valentine huay <laughs> yeah and i'm going to spell this out because nobody <laughs> really seems to know how to spell his name so yeah. it's valentin or valentine um oh maybe it's h-a-u umlaut y so okay. i call him howie for for simplicity and there he's we go been gone a long time so he'll, right. he'll forgive me um so he was came to be known as the father and apostle of the blind. Um, and so he was one of these people, right, that kind of thought about um, not just what Diderot was saying, of course, but I think that had a lot to do with it, but um, really the, the idea of enlightenment and progress and the need for not just rich people to get educated, not just even the middle class to be educated, but really everybody to be educated. And, you know, this is still, uh, this is pre-revolution, Revolutionary France, right? So um, these ideas were, were floating around very definitely, you know, before the revolution. And so he, um, well, the funny, the funny, can I tell the long version of this story? No, the long yeah. story. Sure. <laughs> so Valentin Aoui was a, was an orthographer by trade. So that's also kind of where this story goes. But um, he, so very much middle-class, working-class uh, Parisian. Um, his brother was apparently a, a, like a brilliant scientist and stuff. So he was connected with the intellectuals of, of Enlightenment Paris. But um, he was walking along a street in 1771 in Paris and stumbled into this um, this fair for St. Ovid, for St. Ovid. And uh, there were these 10 blind men that were like, banging instruments and wearing dunce caps and asses ears and having quite a riotous time with the the public all drunkenly dancing around and they had like stands of music that were facing the audience so it was this this raucous wild scene that 
Howie was completely disgusted by and said to himself, there's some like really flourishy language in, in how he describes the scene, but yeah. basically it says something like, you know, I will, you know, degrade the head of those who have, you know, right. degraded these heads and, and I will teach the blind to read and I will make them form characters and, you know, on and on. And so yeah. it's, it's, it, so it, this was the moment at which the idea of educating the blind, not just individuals, because there were you know, rich blind individuals who would come along that were able to get individual attention, but his was the first idea to, and in fact, he was inspired by one of those people. He met a woman named um, Maria Theresia von Paradis, who was a kind of a, a musical prodigy from Vienna. And so she was doing her uh, tour of, of France and he met her and saw her what they kind of call the pedagogical instrument. So her like raised maps and letters and things like that. And um, and he was finally really put over the edge to finally get the, get the money that he needed to put together the first school for the blind. And I should say that he began teaching his students with um, with raised block letters and, and things mm -hmm. like that. Eventually he stumbled with the help of his first student upon embossed letters, but it wouldn't be for another 40 years uh, or so um, that uh, Louis Braille would actually go to that school and then right. invent Braille. So that's kind of a different story. So education kind of started with embossed letters. So basically right. embossed versions of Latin, Latin type. And as a, a very quick side note, I really love the bit where you were talking about how um, the, there were like these cries of exploitation about these blind mm. men. You were mm -hmm. like, played shows like that you know what I mean I thought yeah. that was great you're like and that's where the like punk rock comes in right I mean that's yeah, where it's right. like wait a minute because it is I mean look I'm not discounting what what how he did right I mean it's a wonderful thing that he decided to open up the very first school for the blind but it is interesting that in the tellings of these stories and I first came upon this story like reading all these kind of mid mid 20th century histories of the education of the blind and it, they were very self-satisfied right that this right. is the only way to 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 have read this situation and in my mind as a performer I was like those blind men were probably having a pretty good time too yeah, right. I mean you know yeah. I mean how many how many comics uh, how many comedians out there are like self-deprecating you know and I mean I think that that's kind of playing along with that and there's no indication in, in the literature that they were prisoners I mean they were free to to come and go they probably made some money they probably got quite a few free beers as right. well. And I mean, and there's even like some scene, some scenes of them like storming the, the getting the, the platform stormed because the, the audience was so excited, right? So this is a concert, right? This is, yeah. yeah. Right. So it's true. There is something that um, I, I do try and skirt the, to, to make sure, and I'm kind of setting up for things that happen later in the book, to make sure we're not too quick to say that progress is just one thing or, that the experience of blindness is just one thing. And that is, you know, kind of this enlightenment rationality. That's one yeah. way of seeing that scene. But the other scene is, is about, is about performance and it's about, you know, kind of, well, allowing blind people to, to, to be all kinds of things, you know, ridiculous as well as sublime. Um, right. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about your, cause you're, um, I don't know if you, call yourself an actor but you are certainly a performer you've you've acted in uh television uh can you kind of talk about that and about the like 
the need for blind people to kind of play themselves. Yeah, I'm so glad that you brought this into this moment. I have to say there was a messier version of this book where I tried to pull that off right right there in this, uh-huh. this 17th century or 18th century moment. Um, but yes, um, so because I was also performing while I was doing my, my dissertation, which is when I first encountered this story, I think that automatically made me think of what I was doing as a performer. And, and again, made me think about um, how important it is for us to tell our own stories. And that means everything from writing our own novel characters um, to um, to writing scripts with interesting and uh, kind of fully fleshed out blind characters to act blind actors, you know, playing mm-hmm. themselves. Um, and I, I was lucky enough, I, I'm definitely not an actor, you know, an actor. I mean, I had very <laughs> little training or whatever, but I had this idea that I would put on a one woman show, but that's sort of another story that maybe we'll get to in a minute. But uh, so I've done some acting. I would say I'm definitely a performer, um, but in terms of, uh, going out for roles, um, I got this one commercial that was one of the first commercials that actually had, um, that made a point of casting blind people in the roles of the the blind uh, actors or characters in the commercials. And, um, and I remember they, you know, they put the commercial up on, it was on television, but it was also, there was a, a place where they had it on online. And so people could kind of as they like to do these days, they could kind of chime in about what they think about this commercial, you know, and, and it ran the gamut of people, you know, saying things to the effect of, oh, it's, you know, it's so beautiful. It makes me cry, you know, because I'm, I'm this very happy blind mother with a, a beautiful little blind child doing laundry of all things. Was, okay. My, uh, my friends all, all were very disappointed, you know, with my, with my outfit and stuff. Right, said, well, right. I'm, I'm acting, you know, but yeah. the, the interesting comments were things about, people saying she's not blind. She's, she's not blind, you know? And I mean, you could look me up anywhere and, and see that, you know, I write actually quite a bit about being a blind person and stuff. And even one said something really with lots of exclamation marks that said, uh, that this is not a real blind person. This is an actor, you know, right. as if being a blind actor is just not even a thing, yeah. right? It's it doesn't compute, I think, in a lot of people's minds. And so um I, I talk quite a bit, especially as we move on in the book, about the limitations of that kind of the limitations that that kind of attitude places upon we who might want to be actors, we who might want to be performers in a way that maybe doesn't fit the uh maybe the angelic view of how people understand blindness to be. And, um, and then of course, it also just robs us of the ability to be an actor, right? I mean, right. If, if, we're, if we're not being cast, then we basically are denied that, um, that discipline, that, um, uh, that career path, um, yeah. if, if it's always going to be sort of sighted people putting on, as I like to say, blind face, you know, right. kind of doing the blank yeah. stare, which is hopefully going to be dismissed soon. <laughs> um, you have this idea of where you're, uh, you're blindish in regards to your mobility. Mm. And can you talk a bit about Moses? Yeah, 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 yeah. So we're skipping right ahead to one of my, you know, one of my favorite chapters that I think really 
the ideas in it are, you know, completely animate the, the book. And it's the Scylla and Charybdis of stigma and superpowers. So really what you were referring to a long time ago that I think I kind of glossed over, but this idea that there, there's kind of no middle ground for blind people in, right. in the, our cultural representations. It's either um, sort of pitiful beggars on the one hand uh, or kind of specimen, or on the other hand, that kind of, you know, the poet prophet slash superpowered person. And so this vast middle ground is kind of denied us. And um, one of the problems about that is that it makes it kind of hard for to just be like a normal blind person. I think yeah. in some people's minds, even just saying normal blind person almost might feel like an oxymoron or something, mm -hmm. you know? And I think that, that it's somehow, and don't ask me exactly how, but it's it's connected up with this incredible sort of the downside. So the pitiful, uh, helpless side of being blind um, is all focused in on the, the stigmatic white cane. I mean, I think to a large extent um, that object, that very useful object um, that both, you know, warns us of, you know, curbs and stairs and things like that, but also warns the public, as you say, um, that you're not, you know, trying to make a mosh pit out of the sidewalk, right? That you just can't, right. <laughs> you can't see most of the, right? The degrees of the peripheral yeah. vision right. um, that you might be shouldering people. So it, it, it's really useful in both respects, but somehow it's, it was very quickly turned into this st stigmatic object that I think for a lot of us is, is very hard to pick up, um, especially those of us who, kind of go into blindness with all of the misconceptions of the sighted world, of the ocular centric world. Mm -hmm. And um, and especially if we have some vision, it almost makes it harder because we can we can immediately see the difference, I think, in the way that the world treats us. I mean, if it's not enough, you know, that people will kind of stop and ask impertinent questions or grab our arms or okay. what have you. But there's also just this feeling that suddenly you're an alien, you know, that you're mm -hmm. from this, this other realm. And so um, it makes it so hard for us to make the adjustment because we're not doing what we need to do to be safe. And so that a lot of that chapter is about um, kind of looking to other memoirs that were kind of going through similar things to me. And so I think you're referring to Jim Knipfel, um, mm -hmm. another friend. I managed to squeeze a lot of friends into this book, yeah. I must say, but he has written many, many books and many articles. Uh, but the one that I'm referring to in, in my book is his memoir called Slackjaw. And he talks quite a bit about trying to reconcile his kind of punk rock aesthetic um, with this thing, this stigmatic white cane, you know? And so yeah. he, he some, says somewhere, you know, that he, I think it's even his friend says, um, you know, well, it, it must be really great, right? To walk through New York city and, uh, you know, you must kind of get people out of your way and stuff. And, and, uh, and, and Jim has to kind of, agree and say, yeah, everybody parts in front of me like the f***ing Red Sea. Right, right yeah. From that, my partner and I are still in disagreement about who exactly came up with actually calling the cane Moses. Uh -huh. um, but 
we did, and because it's my interview, I get to say <laughs> I did I did more. No, yeah. <laughs> and he's back there groaning. I agree, I agree. Absolutely. <laughs> and so, but it's funny to call my cane Moses because people seem to really like it as soon as I give it a name, and especially because it's a name that's kind of uh, kind of shows that it's a it's a thing of power, right? It's a thing of power, not helplessness. But I think somehow um, people somehow really respond to that, right? That they realize that by giving it a name that it's an important object. It's not a stigmatic object, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so it's kind of my little battle against that that stigma. Um, but, I, but that's to say, I'm not the greatest cane user in the world. I, mm -hmm. I'm not proud of it, but I, I'm not, I'm not that great and, um, needs practice just like anything else. Um, and so there's, a, there's another blind guy that I quote quite a bit in my book. Um, he is, he, he lived through most of the 20th century. His name is Jacob Tversky. Um, and he wrote several books, um, one of which is a, is a memoir. And, um, he talks about being in a school for the blind, like in the, 20s or 30s or so and so they would call um the people the the boys that weren't very good at being blind the one that would kind of the ones that would like bump into things uh -huh. and knock their heads and stuff and and grope around they called them blindish um right. and so so kind of my thing is is sort of like actually my i'll give credit to my partner for this one um alabaster said when i told him that he said oh well that means that you know being blind is a skill set and, and I right. think that that's really true. You know, I mean, I think that when we think of the cane as being stigmatic, then we're not allowed to, to develop that skill set. you know? And so I kind of say, you know, I'm, I'm blindish, but I'm, I'm working on being, you know, full-fledged blind. Yeah. Okay. That's, um, I, we are, we have like a couple minutes left. And so I, before we get too far into to this last question, I wanted to let people know that like, we tackled a lot of the historical stuff. There's very much a contemporary um, uh, scope to the book as well. And it's very much like a memoir and a, a kind of cultural dissection. And it's like, it's like five books in one book and yet it works, you know what I mean? Um, but not and, the length of War and Peace or anything. It's, it's a, yeah, it's a right. respectable yeah, it's not, length. It's not <laughs> Um, but I, I didn't want people to think that it's just a, a, about like Homer and, you know, all that stuff. It's like, it's very much uh, encompasses current times as well. And so I think for my last question, I'm wondering if you could kind of tell us uh, what you're hoping people can walk away from after reading the book mm. um, and what you have uh, planned for the future as far as... Oh. Um, academic stuff or, or, or writing stuff or, or performance or any of that. So, yeah. Mm. Well, um, and I think I'll, I'll just say this. I think we are going to open up for, for questions if yeah. people want to drop their questions right. into the chat box, um, just because I'm giving myself a moment to think about this. So, gosh, there's a lot of things that I would like for people to take away from this book, um, some of which we've, we've touched upon. Um, Th this vast middle ground of, of blindness is just so underrepresented in our culture. Um, for example, the blind mother, right? It, it basically doesn't exist in, in cultural representations. Um, 
So I think the only way that that can really change is if we're the authors of our own stories. So kind of an own voices movement within disability and within blindness. And that's not to say that a sighted person is never supposed to write a blind character. I mean, we're all going to make mistakes, you know, when we're describing the other in our in our stories, in our literature, in our movies. But the problem is, is that it's been so skewed for so long that we only have representations, I mean, almost only have representations of blind people that are created by sighted people. Mm-hmm. And so I think that sighted people just need to kind of step off for a, a little uh-huh. bit, you know, and allow for some recalibration in order to um, a- allow for these other stories, because I, I, I know plenty of blind writers and they have had trouble getting their stories out uh, literally with blind characters um, of editors saying, oh, this is not something that I've seen in the media. I I don't believe this, this doesn't feel real to me, you know? So so obviously that's problematic. It's tied to the fact that it's been so hard for blind people to be in the workforce at all, let alone be artists in the workforce, you know? Um, I mean, that's hard enough (laughs) with, you know, with with all the um, sort of cultural support, you know, but um, so so that's part of it. Um, Allowing for a kind of own voices movement within the arts Um, and it extends to all walks of life. I mean, because I also talk about blind scientists and mm-hmm. and that might even come as a surprise to people, right? The idea of a blind scientist. And there are there are some, some you know, called the, the kids coming up, you know, there are more and more. I mean, in my kind of far flung world of, of blind culture, I can think of a neuroscientist and a geneticist and an mm-hmm. organic chemist, and but they're all in their twenties and thirties. So this is fairly new and very much thanks to the digital era. Yeah. Um, but uh, we need, for there to be room for different, again, different perceptual um, uh, points of access to to kind of mainstream realms of science and arts and culture and, you know, the humanities, I mean, you name it, as well as business and things like that. So so that's really, I guess, my call to action. Um, And kind of along with that would be the ability to celebrate blind culture and really think about it as a um, as as a kind of a pride movement, you know, uh, being connected with disability pride, and being able to to feel like not only we must be included into mainstream sighted culture, but that sighted culture has a great deal, as Diderot said, to learn from blind people, especially yeah. if we're given the chance to create you know the science and arts in in a way that is true to our experience and not trying to you know somehow approximate sightedness or something right that's a wonderful answer wow thank you (laughs) and then the other part of it (laughs) is um what i'm gonna do with my future post book (laughs) um and I, I assume that they will interrupt us when we need to, when we need to finish up. But um, it, we, uh, I have always got fifty projects going on. Yeah. Um, my 
three big things right now are one to finish my long suffering novel finally and completely, which uh, does feature uh, not one, but two blind protagonists mm -hmm. and um, to uh, continue my work around scent. And, and this is kind of a related issue that has to do with these other kinds of sciences. Um, and also, yeah, it goes along with this idea of blind pride or, or blind culture, where uh, I have a magazine called Aromatica Poetica. So it's the arts and kind of celebrates the arts and sciences of smell and taste. We take um, submissions from all over the world. So poetry, uh, stories, nonfiction, fiction, we've got a scent column. Um, as far as we know, the first ever scent column. But the idea is that it's a place for um, blind and sighted to, to come together. And it's also something that was brought about by some of my research, which is that because we live in an ocular centric world, like 90%, I'm, this is not a hard figure, right? But a lot of our science goes into thinking about sight. Yeah. So we tend to um, focus in on sight because there's more research done and then it becomes kind of a self-perpetuating cycle, you know? And so trying to kind of celebrate not only the arts of smell, but also the science of smell and kind of talking to, to scientists who work in, in the realm of olfaction and things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, well, thank you so much. And I'm going to mute myself. And I had so much fun. Thank you so much. Oh, you! I, thank you, Keith. Thanks for being here. Uh, so thank you both so much. We do have a couple questions. Um, Great. I will just say, I guess, my, for myself, for a description, um, I am a white person with short brown hair. I am wearing a, a headset and a plaid shirt, and I have a mostly white background behind me. Um, so this first question you've kind of covered a little bit, Leona, but I, you know, maybe I will still ask it just because there's anything um, else you want to say about it. But they write in your bio, uh, it mentioned you produced or directed some theatrical productions. Can you mm. talk about that? What were, what kind of elements were you able to build in that made those productions more accessible? And maybe what were um, the major challenges with, with producing mm. those? Oh boy, that is a great question. Um, as I told Keith, I, I do sometimes go for the, the long answer, but I will say that my first theatrical production um, was called The Star of Happiness, Helen Keller on Vaudeville. And um, this came about because I was in the middle of my dissertation and I stumbled across this book called The Radical Lives of Helen Keller. And in it, I came across a sentence that mentioned that she performed for four years in vaudeville. So from 1920 to 24. And because I was knee deep in my dissertation, the idea of trying to write a book about that did not sound appealing whatsoever. And I was kind of moonlighting in um, kind of the, uh, performance art scene of the Lower East Side in New York City. So the first thing that came to mind was, well, why not try and do a solo performance, uh, a solo production that centers around Helen Keller in vaudeville and um, and and what it means. And and I'll, I'll step back a little bit because what fascinated me about it was that in this book that was basically about her leftist politics, um, the, the author was just a little bit dismissive of, of vaudeville. I mean, obviously that was not the focus of the book, but it was interesting to me because I felt like, again, um, there are things that I think people want out of their blind people um, or, or that feel uh, right and correct, 
and vaudeville is not one of them. Um, it feels a little lowbrow, and even her, you know, when when she did it, her friends. She she talks about this in her um, in her book Midstream. Her friends kind of said, you know, were quite distressed that she was doing this thing. Other people said that she was being exploited, and um, it was really important for me to, to think about those concepts because she was 40 years old and a very intelligent woman, extremely you know, politically savvy and um, very much aware of the, of the, the politics and, and the, the world around her. And to, to say that she was exploited is demeaning, right? Because it suggests that she is not able to, to make her own decisions. And she went into vaudeville for extremely practical reasons. She needed to make some money. And they were doing, her and Ann Sullivan were, had been doing the, the lecture circuit and it was really grueling and it didn't pay very well. And vaudeville was actually a, a better gig, quite, quite frankly. On top of it, she was able to uh, work in her, um, her lefty politics in the question and answer period. So I got to really play with that. I, I took questions from her, uh, from a, a book called, um, well, a biography of hers. So uh, um, by Dorothy Herman. And um, there were this list of questions that her and Annie had, had drawn up uh, in kind of preparation for the vaudeville stint. So some of them are on record of like, here, I'll just give you one. It's pretty funny. It's a, uh, what do you think of capitalism? And she says, I think it has outgrown its usefulness. <laughs> so, so that sort of thing, you know, but um, bum. and, and, you know, but the questions would apparently range from, you know, very serious, you know, political questions of, you know, what do you think of Harvard's discrimination against the Jews to, you know, do you dream at night to, you know, like, what is, one more little zinger, what is Miss Keller's age? And, you know, there is no age on the vaudeville stage, you know, so all these like, just really funny stuff. So I worked that all into the, the stage production. Um, I, I have to say that I was not as good about accessibility as I really wish I could have been. Um, we did have some, I mean, of course the whole thing was, was spoken, but we did have some quite beautiful projections. We, we kind of had ideas of like creating an app to be able to go with the stage production so that you would have, um, you know, access to what was going on visually. Um, or printed out in braille, but these things are so expensive. So it was a little rough, but I will say that the, the images were kind of a, you know, they were background, they were very nice for the people who were visual, but I don't, I hope that people didn't miss too much by not having access to them. I will say though, if I did it again, I would do it very differently and, and have more access to the visual elements or maybe no visual elements at all. I'm not really sure, but, um, but uh, in terms of creating it, um, it was it was interesting to to be on stage. I mean, I'll say that it could be quite disorienting, and this is why I say like I'm not really an actor. You know, I think I prefer to kind of stand and speak and give something maybe a little bit more lecturish. But uh, in the production, I actually even did a little dance at one point. But um, it was it was it was fun and interesting. My other production, I was not the solo performer. I did do some directing um, of actually cited performers, uh, 
that's because that, that's what I knew at the time. <laughs> it's like now it would be so different. I would certainly find all of my, my blind actor friends, but I didn't have that kind of community at that time. So um, anyways, you do what you do what you can at the time. Um, yeah. yeah, great, thanks. Um, so this next one, um, I'm, uh, I, I think they're probably reading the, um, the book description a bit because I'm not sure that you mentioned this at all, but um, can you mm. talk about how echolocation was developed or maybe just to what extent uh, it's, it's addressed in your book? Oh yeah, so um, there's, a, there's a chapter that um, is kind of situated in the, um, in the 19th century. I start out talking about a man named James Holman who was known as um, the blind traveler, is kind of a, a, he was a naval officer and then went blind quite suddenly in his 20s, I believe, and decided that he was gonna just keep traveling the world. And there's a really great book by Jason Roberts um, that, uh, it is a biography of, of James Holman. Um, and one thing that comes up in that book is that uh, Holman used his cane, which was basically, uh, this was before the white cane was invented. It was just kind of what was at that time a gentleman's walking stick, you know, in kind of the, the Victorian era. And he would use the cane not only to give him some indication of what was in front of him, but also to uh, create sound in order to he wouldn't have used the term at, at that time, but to echolocate. So in other words, using the sound from the tapping of his cane to describe the streets and the surroundings as he wandered around literally the world um, by himself virtually. Um, and so kind of connecting that up with some newer uh, understanding of the usefulness of echolocation for blind people, um, and when I say echolocation, sometimes it's a little bit confusing because, of course, one thinks of, of bats and of sending out signals, right, as right. James Holman would do, you know, creating these, these taps that would ver reverberate. But um, echolocation can also be a passive thing. Maybe we need a better word for it, but it's like reflected sound. Um, and so there, there's a great book um, by a perceptual psychologist named Lawrence Rosenblum. And um, so he talks about how all humans actually have the ability to determine quite a bit of their surroundings and what's in front of them based on very small sounds. So even just reflected fans off of walls. Um, there was a very famous uh, experiment that was done, I don't know, probably 40 years ago or something, where they were trying to figure out something called facial vision that blind people would describe. Um, so this was a kind of a passive echolocation where um, without even really realizing it, many blind people learned to tell if there is something in front of them um, because of the sounds, but it doesn't really have that feel. Like it feels as if it's your it's coming from the, the front of your face. Um, but they, they realized, uh, they did this experiment with, with blind and sighted people um, of seeing if, um, how, how, if they were blindfolded, so sighted and blind people, if they could tell if there was a, like a wall in front of them. And 
they they were able to do it every time. And then suddenly the, the researchers realized that this was, I think the fifties or sixties or something. And they realized that their shoes were just tapping on the floor and that they were, they were basically echolocating and able to, to tell that there was a wall in front of them with, with blinders on or the blind people as well. And so that was kind of the beginning of realizing that what, fa what people called facial vision, because that was kind of the feel of it, was actually coming in through the ears. And it was actually a form of kind of passive echolocation. Um, and so trying to on the one hand, talk about the science of that and how interesting it is and how sad it is that for many years, um, little blind kids were dissuaded from using clicks and other things like that to even get a better idea of their surroundings because it seemed like it would alienate them from the rest of the population. So there's kind of a political element to it as well. Um, again, this kind of ties, up, ties into stigma and the idea that if something if we do something differently, the, the, the more differently a blind person kind of looks in the world, that's going to be bad for them when in actuality we might need to do things differently and to try and fit in rather than to try and do the the best with the senses that we have is really the problem, right? That urge to be included rather than the urge to exploit the senses that we have. Yeah, that's really fascinating. Um, well, uh, there's one more question and you also kind of uh, uh, touched on this a little bit, but um, I think it's a nice one to kind of end on. Um, uh, where are we now in terms of making the world more accessible for everyone, but maybe particularly for blind people? Um, uh, you've given a great history here and I'm just wondering if you think we have a long way to go still. Oh boy. Well, unfortunately I do not have any clairvoyance, so I'm not sure how long the road is. I will say that the digital era has been pretty amazing for blind people. I mean, it's really been a game changer from my, from my own perspective. Um, you know, when I get up every morning and I hit my computer and I've got my text speech software and I've got a braille display that I also use, which I'm okay at braille, but I mostly use text to speech. So typing in and having audio out. Um, when I hit my computer, I, I don't feel blind, right? I, my, my computer is totally accessible. And, um, and so basically I don't feel my disability. Um, and that certainly couldn't have been the case, um, you know, 20 years ago, especially with now iPhones and uh, everything being automatically accessible. I mean, this is just amazing in the last 20 years. I was talking earlier about how um, how Kusisto had to, you know, lug in his huge record player in order to play Paradise Lost, right? Um, where now I have Paradise Lost along with probably a hundred other books in my phone, just, just like a lot of you have. So it's hard for me to get perspective because it's still so exciting. I mean, in terms of technology, it's still so exciting. I mean, to be able to access every book as soon as my sighted peers can access it. I mean, this is amazing. This is not what I grew up with. So in terms of the digital age, that's that's amazing. In terms of attitudes, they don't seem to be shifting quite as quickly as um, as they should 
in light of the digital era. And I think that the reason why I wanted to have a cultural history um, kind of much, very much grounded in the stories of my friends and people who are, you know, writing memoirs today is because to me, the, the attitudes that people have towards blind people can sometimes be more debilitating than the blindness itself. Um, and that goes to the most um, fundamental aspects of our humanity, which is to, you know, to, to, to be a viable member, you know, to, to go out and get work as I was talking about before, or to be able to raise kids and not be discriminated against. So I guess it's kind of hard for me to, I guess, unravel um, accessibility from ableism, you know, and, and that um, those two things go hand in hand because you have to have a public that wants a blind voice in order to kind of create an accessible world as well. Um, yeah, I, I, that's, <laughs> that's my best guess right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much um, for this. This has been fascinating. And, um, you know, I think uh, part of, uh, part of, you know, bringing what you just talked about to the, to the fore is, is all of us uh, just hearing, hearing from you and, and being exposed to um, the history and learning about more about it. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Well, thanks to Town Hall for inviting us to, to talk about it. It's, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Yeah. yeah, thanks very much. And yeah. thank you, Keith. Yeah, absolutely. I want to thank the audience as well. Thanks for watching. Um, if you're interested in purchasing a copy of Leona's book, there's a link in the chat. Please use that. And that's going to take you right over to Elliott Bay Book Company um, so you can support a local store. Ooh, can I just say that there are some really cool book plates that they have as well, I believe. Oh, yes, right. Yes. Um, that are that. Bra brailed with, uh, hand brailed by me that say, down with ocular centrism. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, right. that's so great. Cool. Well, thank you both again so much. And um, I hope they have a great night. Thank you. Bye, everyone. Thanks for being here. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Speakers Forum for KUOW 94.9 Seattle. Town Hall Seattle presented this conversation with M. Leona Godan with Keith Rawson on a personal and cultural history of blindness on June 16th, 2020. If you like this talk, check out our other conversations at KUOW.org speakers. Thanks for tuning in.